once again lead the nation in challenging and removing books in 2023. Chicago established the nation's first book sanctuary last year. The sanctuary is described as a physical or digital space that actively protects the freedom to read. If you'd like more details on how to establish a book sanctuary, visit booksanctuary.org. Support this local newscast and this station now by becoming a member at kpft.org. And thanks for tuning in to 90.1 KPFT Houston. Hi, this is Clint Broussard from Blues and Hi-Fi, and you are listening to 90.1 FM KPFT Houston. Welcome to Growing Up in America here on KPFT Pacifica Radio. It's Claire Dutre, Dr. Bob here. Claire, how are you doing today? I am good. I uh, The weather is starting to cool down. Mm, it's Texas not cool enough, is starting though, is to it? feel like a better state. It is. is it really? No. But the weather, <laughs> I feel like, I don't know, I, I have an energy of hope around organizations. I think where people yeah. are fighting, the good fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we love Texas. I mean, there's yeah. there's a reason we're here, right? Is we love Texas. Change so. can happen. Uh, welcome to Growing Up in America here on KPFT Pacifica Radio. This is a discussion on children, public policy, families. How do we as a community do when it comes to taking care of every single one of our children? We're a production of Children at Risk, the voice for the children of Texas. And uh, we have a great show today, Claire. I'm, I'm really excited, excited about it. We uh, start off the day with uh, Melanie Johnson. Dr. Johnson is the presidency of Collaborative for Children. We're going to talk about the state of uh, child care and early education in Houston. We're going to be talking with Kim Coffrin, who is the Senior Director of Education. We're going to be talking about non-traditional child care. We're also going to dip into the environment. Grace Lewis from the Environmental Defense Fund. We're going to talk about their new Climate Vulnerability Index uh, and talking about uh, where does Houston rank in terms of the United mm. States near the bottom? Yeah, I think, I think <laughs> of the oil and gas. She's going to talk about this, but I think it's like the four worst or most environmentally dangerous cities. Like okay. Houston's number four, and then like your Louisiana's favorite, favorite. <laughs> number one. You're you're yeah, you're neck of the We're woods. right there. Louisiana's number one. Uh, also, uh, we'll be talking about uh, the state of education. Uh, Claire and I will be talking a little bit about this education summit that's coming up tomorrow. The thumbs up, thumbs down today will be a, a good one. Um, should parents have the final say in their children's choice of extracurricular activities? And then, one. what was that? You said it's a long one. Long one, yeah, I know. And then uh, we have our thumbs up, thumbs down. I mean, our date of the day, 12.4%. Any ideas on that, Claire? No. 12.4% of Texans don't know the Texan pledge. And I'm part you know, of that. You're part of that. <laughs> it, if you're from out of state, you come to Texas and you you stand up wherever you it's are to do the Pledge of Allegiance. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> and, and then they start doing the Texas Pledge. Yeah, and you're the like, plagiarized version. What? What's <laughs> going on with the Texas Pledge? It's sort of, I remember the first, I was at a school board meeting and they we did the Pledge of Allegiance. Like, okay, fine. And then the Texas Pledge, like, what? what is this? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it will flare to it. For anyone who doesn't know, other states don't have a pledge. I'm no, sure no at this else. point, no one, so, else. Yeah, no one else. Just Texas. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a it's sort of a very Texas thing though when you think about it, it is. isn't it? It's yeah. immediately after no breaks. Everyone knows what to and do. Do you, do you know it by heart yet? No, I'm in the twelve point four percent. But still learning the <laughs> plagiarized version. It's it's really and it's quick too. It's like I pledge to the flag of Texas and Yeah, it's I'm and also I pledge to Texas. Yeah, that's yeah. it. So uh, anyway, so, someone knows the pledge. So we will Rico, have a children at risk pledge. Rico, to do follow. you know? Do you know the pledge uh, for Texas? Um, not right now. No, no, no. not right now. <laughs> Just on someone, Thursdays. Someone knows it somewhere. Uh, anyway, we have a good show coming up. So coming up, let's do our thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, and if you want to join the conversation, go to our Instagram story at 
children at risk? Should parents have the final say in their children's choice of extracurricular activities? All right, this can go a number of different ways, right? Should parents have the final say, right? Because yes. I feel like sometimes parents are really good at pushing kids to do new things. Right. Very good. Uh, but I also think things like football, right? I mean, I know of a mom who really did not want her child to play football, but he signed up, I think, in middle school for football. I thought you had to have permission. I, I I don't know whether he forged the signature or whatever, but he ended up playing football and mom was like, I didn't want you to play football. And then it became a big old deal. So I think it's, it could be all over the place, but I also, I know in my case as a little kid, um, and this is growing up in Puerto Rico where there were very few extracurricular activities, (laughs) I have to say, but I wanted to do everything. And my mom was like, no, I'm not sure you should be doing anything. So it's (laughs) just, you know, I, 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 I would Both have thought ways. at that point I would have been like, no, I don't need my my mom's approval. I would just want to do it. But but when I think about football. Yeah, you probably should have your you kids' probably approval. probably should. I know. I do the both ways as well. My mom was very, get out there, live your truth. Um, but then I brought home the cheerleading packet, and I, I was oh, not she, a cheerleader. She, she didn't want you to be a cheerleader? Well, it was letting me down easy, because yeah. I, I did gymnastics. And she's like, they give you pity stickers. You're not, gonna, you're not built for this uh, at all. But it was also the financial note behind it. She was oh, like, yes. whoa, this is an immediate $500 oh, yeah. commitment. Um, so she's like, try theater. And good thing she did, because I'm a theater kid at heart. But my cousin, I remember, really wanted to get into theater. And her parents were, or mom, was mainly like, no, no, no to a lot. And a lot yeah. of it was driving. Um, and I get that as a commitment. But she was very negating on anything after school, which was sad. Luckily, since I was doing it, it was that my mom could yeah. drop us off. And I just saw her become more involved in light kind of shine through um i don't know if she was winning the emmys that i was winning (laughs) (laughs) which you continue continue to win i know when we do the children at risk production on broadway yeah yeah. um but no i i like you said when it's safety when it's um financial support sometimes because i didn't know i was in seventh grade i just wanted to be a cheerleader be cool yeah um then yeah have a final say but don't be super negating on your children. Yeah. I think the whole idea of cost too. I mean, it brings up all sorts of other things, you know, kids who want to be in band, uh, whose parents yeah. can't afford to buy the instrument or the rent the instrument. I mean, yeah. that's, I wonder that's if there's still a charity a for that. Yeah. There, Maybe we'll there start. Are, there oh, are okay. Never mind. I just you thought know, I had the, a million dollar idea. You know, the, uh, <laughs> MTV used to do that for a while. That was okay, the MTV cool. charity charity for a while where you would, they would give money for band instruments. Okay. Uh, across the country, Missed but opportunity. I, I don't think it goes for everyone. I mean, you had to be one of the lucky uh, you had to show schools your that get the the MTV money. Yeah. But uh, but I think that still exists, whether it's cheerleading or band or some of the other things, right? That you I, I didn't need, need that support. <laughs> Someone else could have had that to your backing. But but I agree, it is a the one that financial or maybe a yes or no and I guess in this instance of no, don't do cheerleading. But mm-hmm. what about theater or what's mm-hmm. an activity happening during school hours? Because I I can't afford to drive back and forth. Is there an after-school bus where you could take? Yeah. Um, try to find the local library because kids kids learn community through these extra. So we have a. I'm going to do a big oh. thumbs up on football. No, that oh or, thumbs up to approval to approval. You need approval for any of these sports that might be dangerous. Mm-hmm. But I think other you know as kids get older, give them a little bit of opportunity, right, to try something different that even their parents. I don't know. I, maybe wondering. we were going to put an age note on this. I don't know, right? Um, I don't think there's going to be a time parents don't have to sign off for the sake of travel liability and money. Yeah. Um, so I'm a thumbs up on final say, but if it's a free activity happening within school hours, thumbs down, join a club. Well, yeah, them, yeah. Yeah, there you Sorry, go. Parents. I'm with you. We're, 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 we're on the you. same page. We're on the same you can page. go to our Instagram and either join us on the same page or or counteract us at Children at Risk on our Instagram story. Coming up, we have Dr. Melanie Johnson, who's with Collaborative for Children. She's also a nominee for Outstanding Child Advocate in the Houston area. We're going to be talking about the state of child care in Houston. That's right after the break. <laughs> Bye. 
Beyonce. Is that are we doing all Beyonce today? I think yes. Yeah, that so. was that was awesome. Yeah. So from the pr- production room back there, they're just <laughs> doing all Beyonce because today's is today Beyonce Day. Is that the it's, deal? It's Beyonce Week, but oh, she's Beyonce in town week. this weekend. Oh, I see. That's mm-hmm. why we're doing. I need to get with it. You know, I have no doubt that Dr. Melanie Johnson is with it though, and she knows that it's Beyonce Week. <laughs> Dr. Johnson, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. <laughs> yes, I'm a Beyonce fan, and I do. I am aware that it's Beyonce Week, month, uh, year, century. You name it. <laughs> this is uh, Beyonce World, right. and we are living in it, Dr. Johnson. Dr. Johnson, uh, are you going to the concert, the Beyonce concert this weekend? Unfortunately, I yeah. won't be at the concert this weekend, but um, I have a related event to go to um, at Tootsie's, where they're the photographer who made that uh, famous photograph of Beyonce for her uh, recent album and made her very, very famous will be there uh, with the Longnecker Gallery. So I will be there. Oh, very good. My my fair share of uh, celebrating Beyonce's life. Yeah, yeah. But I have no doubt that you and I would both rather be at the concert than at Tootsie's, right? So... uh... (laughs) <laughs> but Dr. Bob's going to neither. So. neither I'm going to neither. Yeah, so. uh, very good. So Dr. Johnson is uh, the CEO of Collaborative for Children and one of the nominees for uh, Outstanding Child Advocate. Uh, Melanie, give us an idea of uh, how, how are we doing in regards to early education in Houston and the work that you guys are doing at Collaborative to rectify that? Yeah, I think in Houston, we've pushed a reset button as a result of COVID. You know, yeah. childcare centers, about a third of them had closed during that time, and now they're back and, and trying to flourish. But with temporary funds, um, temporary federal funds yeah. that have been um, pushed down through our state and local agencies. Um, and I think just where we are now is the fear of how does this, this influx of funds sustain? And mm-hmm. so we're trying to at Collaborative for Children, we're trying to make sure that we offer the biggest impact for sustainability as possible. So the way in which we do that are there are centers of excellence, and they are located in, of course, childcare deserts, which kind of permeates our yeah. entire landscape. But we make sure that those centers, those existing childcare centers in under-resourced areas, have a strong business acumen for the, their leadership, the owner or the director, um, that the teachers have a master teacher on staff that can not only make sure that there are child outcomes that are supportive towards kindergarten, but also that that master teacher can shed light on other teachers in that, um, in that facility. And then finally, engage and empower parents so that parents know exactly what kindergarten readiness or school readiness looks like for their children and how to assist them at home. So those, we believe, will be sustainable approaches far beyond um, you know, temporary funds. Yeah. Yeah. Are you worried? I mean, uh, last week we talked about sort of the funding cliff, you know, that's going to happen as some of this ARPA or federal money runs out. Uh, are you worried about the state of early education as we hit some of these funding, uh, cliffs? You know, it's odd that you should ask that the timing's perfect because yesterday I was at Harris County, um, speaking in front of the commissioner's court and, yeah. This project that Harris County, um, that Judge Hidalgo has established um, called the Early Childhood Impact Fund is to pilot um, a comprehensive approach between public and private entities to make sure that we um, can prove that this funding needs to persist through the county and that, you know, the county needs to continue to vote for it. So I went there to speak to the commissioners about such attempts to approve the budget for one, because yeah. that's always a daunting thing, yeah. but certainly to improve it, to sustain early childhood education. So am I concerned? I think much of it is in our local government's hands. The state has done what it has done. They've even increased a little bit of funding yep. um, for early childhood education, especially for public school pre-K. Uh, but I am worried. I'm a little concerned that um, we need to approve budgets on the local level now and do our fair share. Yeah. Yeah, something really cool. I mean, collaborative for children in general, hearing the models is exciting to me, especially in the K-12 space. It's something they can take a lesson from and invest from with the master teacher model and the training and support. But something really cool is the Collab Lab. Can you talk a little bit about that and innovative solutions to child care deserts? Yes, I love to talk about the Collab Lab. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Also a great name. Yeah. 
Yes, it's so cool. Um, so the Collab Lab is our mobile school, if you will, um, that goes into areas that can't tend to um, have a paying clientele for high-quality early child care. Of course, that's most of, of Houston, but these are areas that um, we cannot establish a brick-and-mortar building because there's just no there's a very low low possibility of parents being able to pay for quality. So we drive that quality right out to them with this um, school on wheels. It has um, kind of the, a mirror image of Houston. It has a, a space center. It has parks and grocery stores uh, because children need to see places that are familiar to them and be able to learn to navigate the larger world outside their homes and um, but in those, embedded in those experiences in the Collab Lab are, you know, tactile, you know, fine motor skills, but school readiness skills so that we can help both generations, mom and dad and the child, um, be prepared for and empowered for school readiness. Um, Dr. Johnson, one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past is this idea that if there's a silver bullet around ending the cycle of child poverty, it's it's high quality early education. And yes. how long before we get to the point where you and I could talk about there are no child care deserts, that every child, if not almost every child, has access to high quality full day early uh, early education how long before we get to that point because it's if you look just at the evidence you would think everyone would be clamoring for super high quality early education i think you know i, I can't put it a finite yeah. amount of time on when we're going to get there but i will say that until we start to realize that all the challenges that we're trying to immediately solve even though it takes a while for someone who's four years of age to rightfully own the positions in uh, renewable energy and, you know, alternative fuels and climate tech and biotech, while it might take a while for them to, you know, to take those, the, those roles and, and become leaders in our environment and solve problems that we need to solve, um, we need to recognize right now that that is the time to start building those future leaders. So I think there's, you know, in every kind of uh, zeitgeist or movement known to man, some kind of inertia t- took place, whereas people had no choice. And so I hope that whatever kind of cataclysmic thing that happens to make us um, prioritize starting at the beginning of a child's, you know, educational tenure, mm-hmm. that that is a positive one and, and not, not a, you know, pandemic or something yeah. even more dire. Yeah. It's interesting, too, to think about, um, you think it'd be a no-brainer as everything in education seems. What do you, if you had a room of everyone in Houston, every stakeholder that would make the decision, what is one urgent thing that you think should be pressing on their minds and that you would encourage they prioritize? You know, um, because we're a workforce state, you know, and our early childhood education falls under workforce, uh, the emphasis is on the first generation, primarily. You know, let's get parents out to work. Let's rate child care centers. Um, let's, you know, for their quality so that we can get more parents out to work. But we essentially need to make sure that we can get more children off to school, school ready. And mm. so the one thing that I would offer to our legislators, policymakers, et cetera, would be that um, we make sure that every concerted effort that falls under uh, the early childhood office, that it has one goal, that the child, that there's a, well, at least that they have one metric that they need to add, is that children, um, that we move the needle for academic growth or preparation for children, cognitive and social-emotional for children. That's the one metric that's left off every kind of um, early education kind of a state-funded initiative. And I would really wish, I mean, we're getting there. Yeah. We're putting some, some efforts towards, you know, a consolidated teacher-pupil um, interaction system, those kinds of things. But we really need to measure outcomes, not just outputs. Yeah, yeah. very good. Dr. Melanie Johnson is with... Collaborative for Children, one of the great organizations in Houston. And uh, Melanie is one of my favorite activists 
uh, in our space here. And so <laughs> thank, thank you, you very much, Dr. Johnson, and thank your whole team for all the great work you do. And thanks for being on with uh, Claire and Dr. Bob on Growing Up in America. It's my pleasure. All Thanks right. again. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you soon. Coming up after the break, we're going to be going right into our little education corner, talking about the state of education here in Houston and one of the big upcoming education summits. We'll be right back. one of my favorite Beyonce's is that her most famous so good. song is I mean that... all of her songs are climbing the charts but... but is that the most famous one do you think I think so I, yeah. I don't know I'd have to look I mean it's referenced so often right so yeah I can't think actually it probably is are you going to her famous. concert by the way no this oh. is killing me I don't have $500 to spare at is that the moment how much it is? I haven't even looked but I've seen in other cities they don't go down so <laughs> I'm sorry to, unless a ticket reseller listening. because no, I was to, hoping to live vicariously. Claire, I know. I have so happened? many friends I'm living vicariously through. Okay, so that's so, good. Luckily so, for me. Okay, very good. Uh, so uh, tomorrow there's a big, uh, the annual big education summit here in Houston. Uh, it's really a focus on Texas education, but mm-hmm. Mike Miles is going to be there. Right. I, I'm interviewing Mike Miles. You and are. so uh, that will be interesting. When we look at the state of public education today, uh, we still have, and I don't have these numbers, but I'm going to say 58% of our kids are not reading at minimum uh, right. uh, reading levels. Uh, about 48% of the kids are not at the math level that they need to be at. So we're talking about half our kids aren't where they should be at grade level. Some right. of this is from the pandemic, certainly when we talk about uh, some of the math scores. Uh, but overall, we're just not there, Claire. Yeah, um, I love talking about education. And I think what's most exciting to me about the conversations happening tomorrow and just in general is it's starting to be very solution-oriented. And so I think we can articulate the problem very well. But now we're bringing in experts looking at it from different issues. And like you were saying, not only are we seeing scores not meet expectations, but we're seeing chronic absenteeism rates get higher. And so we're not even able to capture all of the students to produce higher scores um, in the outcomes. And so I, I am excited about Texas. I feel like we're on a cool shift that could pivot education as a whole. I mean, this is very hopeful of me. Yeah. Um, but there's going to need to be innovative solutions and partnerships with, outside of school districts with local community to get students engaged in education reshaped. 75% of our kids are children of color in our mm-hmm. schools. Uh, 63% are classified as low income. Uh, and yet our state doesn't want to talk about DEI or diversity yeah. or equity, right? So the state is saying, no, don't talk about that stuff. Uh, it seems like with 63% being low income, these are the kids that as researchers, we know they're behind the eight ball and yet we're not doing the above and beyond uh, to get these kids engaged. Uh, we do tend to have like get an A for effort and hope, right? I think that <laughs> that's one of the big things that we focus on. Right. But th- the other good news though, is that if you look over the years before the pandemic, our schools that served low income kids, it was getting better. Right. Mm -hmm. And so do you have hope that we're going to get back on track? Well, I have to have hope. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But no, like you said, it's interesting because we don't want to talk about equity or diversity, but it's explicitly in the closing your gap in TEA. And so schools have to address the um, disaggregated scores by Mm -hmm. race in their schools. And so we have to talk about equity in schools and school leadership, especially with our immigrant population, newcomer population, and how we're meeting students with different language, linguistic backgrounds. Um, I do have hope. I, in conversations, especially, I know Dallas has a little more together. Sorry, Houston. But I see a lot of Houston organizations coming together and really rallying. There's some cool things happening under the surface to improve our systems. And then I know HISD, they're new board right now is doing their community tours so they're going and hearing before they set their metrics Um, so i have i have hope Uh, i know we see the headlines and it's very um it 
breaks down hope or breaks anyone down just to see mm. what they put in the press. But there's some bright spots and I there's still teachers and classrooms and leaders that are showing up for work every day. Uh, you mentioned how Dallas is maybe a little bit of a brighter spot than Houston. That wasn't always the case, right? There no, was, there no. There was a time yeah. when Houston was, when Dallas was looking to what Houston was doing. But in all of these cases, the place that shines the brightest is the Rio Grande <laughs> yeah. Valley, the highest poverty, yeah. yet they do so well down there. Uh, higher teacher retention, uh, more percentage of kids that are taking AP, IB, um, just when we do sort of a apples to apples ranking, they they are doing better than any other they region. They jump everyone, and you know when you talk to them, a lot of it they point to the community of the area, El Paso, RGV. They all say like they keep each other accountable. They have partnerships to help them improve student scores in the AP um, skills, trade certificates, etc. And so it's like how do you how do you replicate community? But it really is just the intentionality of districts with the partners outside. And and the way you have intentionality of districts is you have leaders. Yeah. And the strong valley has leaders. been very good at having strong basically activist leaders, right? People yeah. that really want to be bold and do different things, which which lets me segue to uh, Superintendent Mike Miles in Houston, right? Uh, everyone's favorite Dr. Evil, right? Because you saw that the, the <laughs> Rice the Marching Band did the whole Dr. Evil halftime show based upon oh, Mike Miles. Didn't see that yet. Yeah, so. that was... Uh, so how does a guy who everyone loves to hate but is actually coming in maybe with these intentions of being sort of an activist, you know, trying bold new things. How do we, how do we let him do his thing or do we let him do his thing? Because he came in under these, um, you know, under sort of mixed purposes in a sense, right? I know. Well, we knew from the beginning it was going to be an overhaul from the push to take over. And um, we saw a lot of people push back and still push back. And yeah, it is, it is hard when the headline is the discipline centers and these huge acts um, don't put posters in the classroom, yeah. uh, attack on SEL. And so, but you have to understand, listeners, and just my own hope that um, he's not, he's just the superintendent at the top. There's huge teams under him that could still roll out some positive change and um, are working to do some positive things. The school principal has a lot of autonomy of their school and have, we have millions. No, we don't. We have millions of children, but yeah. we have thousands of principals and leaders that are in these schools, APs, teachers that are really using innovative ways to maintain their teachers and their structures. And so, Sometimes I have to take it one battle at a time and see where the schools of innovation and um, empower them more so because they're the ones in the systems. So as I uh, interview Mike Miles tomorrow, um, and we probably should bring him on the radio show, right, at some point. Yeah, I'm sure he would. Um, what, what's the question that you would want to, uh, for me to ask him? I mean, what's the big question for Mike Miles? Why? <laughs> um, there, There's a lot of questions. I... Can't really think of one. This was really. I wish I had more time to think yeah, about it. Yeah, I'm sorry. It. I just. I guess for you. for him, I would ask in all of the decisions what his ideal education system looks like, mm. because I feel like right now it's very curriculum time on task centric, um, and while that's important, I don't think he's very tunneled on the whole student, and I could just be missing the mark on that. Oh. So that's why I would like to see, even if he could make, what what a school of innovation would be defined by him. Um, is it necessarily just the outcomes, or is it also that the school feels like a community? Um, that's a yeah. great question, isn't it, though? Yeah, you right? can write that down. Yeah, because I, I do feel like, um, like the system the that we've set up in Texas is about outcomes like what does the accountability look like how did you yeah. do on your test score your latest test score uh and even when we look at that right this is where we started off right this idea that half of our kids don't make it don't make the grade when it comes right. to looking at test scores uh, and what we also know though is that when you don't do well by these accountability measures the chances of your success outside of school at the end of your academic career aren't super high also, right? Yeah. I mean, there will be examples of kids that do fine when they didn't test. But by and large, the whole point of this accountability is that we know that most of these kids don't do well. So for a guy to come in and say, I want to make outcomes better and at the end of their academic career and now, uh, but he does walk into lots of trouble, doesn't he? Well, yeah, because it's students have to... I guess now you lose their attention in five seconds. And so yeah. coming on strong doesn't necessarily work with all students nowadays. And it's just, I would love to hear 
um, in a perfect world with strong outcomes, what does that school look like? And is it they open the textbook every day, they close it at 4 p.m. and that's the end of the story? Or Yeah. yeah. Wow, I'm interested to see. I don't know if that's what the El Paso answer would be. Uh, how do people sign up for this free education? Yes, because free it's, innovative it's education. Virtual. It is. They go to childrenatrisk.org, and from there they find our summits page. Usually I just Google children at risk learning events, um, and then they'll find the education summit. If you click the title, you're able to register and join us. And it's free. Yeah, it's free. It's on Zoom. It'll come to your email, and then... Yeah, if you can wow. check out the speaker bios. And are, are you speaking? Are you on a panel or anything tomorrow, Claire? Uh, you'll hear both of our voices. I'm, I'm not on the panel, but I'm moderating debatably the best about teacher workforce. Oh, very good. Yeah. Very good. Well, I look forward to it. Uh, that's the Education Summit tomorrow. Get it virtually on childrenatrisk.org. Hey, coming up, our data of the day. All right, on the line with us is uh, Leila Mazzali. She's the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation. And the title of our topic today, the number of the day, 12.4%. Claire and Dr. Bob here on Growing Up in America. Uh, Layla, what is 12.4%? 12.4%. 12.4% is the new child poverty rate in the U.S. as of last year, um, it is a skyrocketing increase um, from the year before. Um, any guesses as to why that is? So um, well, I know in Texas, I mean, and first of all, that would be a really good child poverty rate in Texas, right? I mean, but but it's very, it's, it's for the United States, right? Because I think in Texas, mm-hmm. what, it's like 27% or so in just child poverty rate is that is that right Layla I don't have that number yeah. in front of me right now the most yeah. current data but it is definitely higher than higher the than national the, poverty 12. rate 4. so I'm going to say it's because of uh we had a dramatic lowering of child poverty when stimulus checks went out right yeah so not just stimulus checks um but the child tax credit oh yeah the expansion of the child tax credit Back in 2021, that led to a historic 46% decline in the U.S. poverty rate, the highest decline in the history of tracking this information. It dropped from 9.7% to 5.2% as a direct result of the child tax credit and a few other public programs as well, but majorly attributable to that. Now, with that that program phasing out, we have a historic increase in the supplemental poverty rate. It's the highest jump on record for the supplemental poverty rate. It's amazing, isn't it? it yeah. With all of this data, knowing that this inc- that this uh, child tax credit did so much good, and and yet our uh, Congress decided die. to not act on it, right? I mean, they tried, but they were defeated. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just is really is a testament to the impact that public programs like this one can have on children and families. It makes such a major difference in their day-to-day lives, their ability to keep the lights on, their ability to keep the fridge full of nutritious food, the ability, their ability to show up to school fed and ready to learn. All of these things can be majorly, majorly helped by public programs such as this one. Um, and unfortunately, um, yeah, we have a really hard time maintaining these things, promoting these things, sustaining them in government. And it is really unfortunate that keeping children out of poverty is not a priority for yeah. legislature, think legislators. With this week and with our conversations that we through the radio, what's most disheartening to hear is that these levels that we're declining to um, are pre-pandemic historic levels. And so... We want to point to the pandemic and blame it and say the relief only kind of took it off for a little bit. But we're 
not investing in programs and new solutions that weren't where we treated them as very short band-aids and that's what's kind of disheartening. Leila, besides the child tax credit, what are some other programs and systems we failed to invest in that could help with this 12%? I mean, there are so many, but of course we have Medicaid expansion. That is huge. Um, expansions to WIC and SNAP. Um, there all kinds of different programs that really support families, particularly families with children and making sure that they have their basic needs met. Yeah. And, and I, I am still stunned. I mean, you're reminding me of this, Layla. I mean, I think it was last year that we actively campaigned in Texas, talking to people, talking to Republicans, right. The, about this idea of expanding the child tax credit, because you know, initially it was a Republican idea back in the day. Tax credit, that's Republican, right? And and here we're going to do this Republican idea. And yet people, the, the response that we got from many was, uh, this is too expensive, you know. Uh, and you wonder, how expensive is it to have a whole generation growing up in poverty as opposed to sort of fighting it now when we know that as they emerge from poverty, the, the payback that they give to this state and this country is tremendous. And so it's, it's sort of short-sighted to, to not focus on child poverty. Yeah, I agree. I, we can't afford not to invest in children and short-term savings results in long-term major social costs. Um, and, you know, we're, we're looking at extreme inflation, you know, families are struggling more than ever um, we still have yet to see an increase um, in the minimum wage, um, especially in Texas that abides by the federal minimum wage and does not have a state minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Um, families are really struggling to keep up. Yeah, very good. Layla Mazzali, uh, your insight is always tremendous. Thank you very much. Layla is the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. L- hey, Layla, how's the weather in California, by the way? Are you back in California now? <laughs> I'm back in California as of last night, but I have not been outside yet today. But I tell you, it is a lot cooler than Texas. <laughs> yeah, you were just here yesterday, and so uh, it was great to see you. And uh, uh, But thanks always for your insight. Great to see you guys. Thank you. All righty. You're listening to Growing Up in America uh, with Claire and Dr. Bob. Coming up after the break, we're going to visit on child care again with Kim Coffrin and talking about some of the non-traditional care that we see around Texas. We'll be right back. Claire, I'm, I'm going to say I could have Beyonce week every week. No, this I mean, is fantastic. This has been good. Uh, Rico, we may want to think about this. Uh, he, he's coming to the outfit. next staff retreat, the Christmas party. Rico's DJ. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, on the phone with us is uh, Kim Coffrin, who is the Senior Director of Education and an expert in early education and uh, across the state of Texas. She's in Austin. Kim, how are you doing today? Good afternoon. I'm great. How are you guys? Very good. Very good. Kim, um, non-traditional care. Give us an idea of what non-traditional child care is. Yeah. So for most families and most centers, child care, you know, is anywhere between that 7 a.m. and 6 p.m. time slot. You know, historically always matched the working hours. Um, But, you know, Working families are working odd hours um, and different hours. And so who's taking care of the babies and the children when mom and dad are at work? And so that non-traditional care, I mean, do we expect that you're going to get the same sort of high-quality learning going on during non-traditional care as you would have during the 9-to-5 type uh, care? You know, all high-quality care starts with 
uh, a loving uh, relationship and attachment with your caregiver. Um, So if that is happening at 5.30 in the morning or if it's happening at nighttime as we're going to bed, um, obviously we're not going to be playing with the blocks and doing all the normal things that you would see in a child care center overnight. Um, But but the the attachment piece and that that, uh, that loving um, environment and relationship that's happening with caregivers during those non-traditional hours are just as vital, you know, overnight as they are during the day. It, it made me think about uh, when we're college students and we pull all nighters to study. Right? It's it's not what you want to do with the young kids though, because then they'll just be cranky all day long, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's really changing that paradigm shift of thinking about non traditional hour. You're still letting the children sleep. They are they are they are going to bed. They are finding that place. And most of the time, what we find parents really need are just some extended hours or early morning hours. You know, the overnight care piece of things isn't that much in demand if a, a parent has an overnight um, position in the hospital or um, service industry, firefighter, et cetera. Yeah. They typically have a family member to, to do the overnight care, but lots of times we find that mom and dad work till 8 o'clock, and 9 o'clock at night, and then they can pick up. And so how do we transition that, that care? Um, but, yes, overnight care, the children would sleep. They're not out doing the all-nighters like the college students. <laughs> They're learning at all hours. Kim, I know we did um, some analysis on this recently, so I don't know if you have the numbers on deck, but what is an estimate of the number of centers that offer non-traditional care? Yeah, you know, so we're, you know, it, it kind of depends on what you're looking at as far as um, what, like, there about 8% of providers have care after 7 o'clock at night till midnight, or, oh, wow. or, or excuse me, overnight, or overnight. So, like, only 8% do that overnight care. There's more than about 31% of providers have that care that's after 6 until about midnight. It doesn't mean they're open the entire time till midnight, but they go into those evening hours for families. But we know families are, are needing um, some additional care. It's, it's finding that that match of where parents what they need and then where that is we also know during the pandemic we lost a lot of family home providers and they're the ones that typically will do non-traditional care hours easier than centers and so and they never came back from the pandemic in the numbers that our child care centers did and so what communities are really missing those family home providers to be able to provide that non-traditional care hours when families really need it that's a high that eight and the 31 percent is higher than i would have imagined right i mean that's a lot of early education centers i mean especially the 30 percent number uh those are that's a lot of early education centers that are staying late for for kids for for the uh for the ease of families right for them to do the work that they need to do yeah i mean it's it's really kind of impressive you know we you know, our, our child care, uh, providers and, and owners and directors out there, you know, care for children and families and they truly care. And so when they can, they can bend and make sure they can care for them in the after hours for just a few more hours or an extra 30 minutes, sometimes that's all parents need. Um, then, uh, they, they try to bend and do that, do that work, but it's still trying to figure out what each community needs and then where that, where that offering is there for those families. Yeah, I know we talked a little bit about it, and I would be remiss not to point the deserts and point to the funding cliff. Um, I know you mentioned that we're already seeing centers having to close. Are these non-traditional care centers the ones that we presume will be the first affected by the funding cliff, or is it kind of scattered? I think it's scattered. I think it, you know, the funding cliff is coming for everybody, so I don't think it's going to be uh, discriminatory depending on 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 who you are. Um, I, I think that's you know our 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 bigger centers um, typically have a little more wiggle room than our smaller centers do, right? Um, and so that's that's who I'm worried about in in general is our smaller centers, our smaller our smaller centers, our smaller home based providers because they just don't have the the revenue um, flexibility that some of our bigger centers do, um, but you know, bigger centers don't fit in every community. And so, how are we making sure that that's it's equitable across all? If you're in a rural area of Texas, or if you're in um, in an urban area or suburb, that we that all families have the choices they need to make it work for their family. Uh, Kim, a, a final question is. Um, when we look at the sort of this non-traditional care, I mean, this could be in the home, this could be these late night, uh, but are, are there any sort of big innovations that you see like, wow, I love the way that these people are doing non-traditional care. Is there something that we could look to as being unusual or particularly innovative? 
Oh, uh, that's a good question, Dr. Bob. You always throw me one. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, I think it's, I think centers that are really meeting their parents where they're at and adapting what they are is where the innovation's happening. Yeah. Is it for one family? Is it for, you know, a group of families? Are you a center that is, um, services a hospital and, and then you need to adjust your hours to meet the right nursing shifts that are happening yeah. and doctor shifts that are happening. I think that's where the innovation coming is where there can really be tuned into what's happening in the community and what the needs are. Um, so that way um, you can, so, so that way the families can really, uh, it, so it's not going to be a one size fit all across the state. Yeah. It's going to be this innovative things that's based on community need. I just think it's so great to bring attention to non-traditional child care, right? Because everyone thinks about the workers who work nine to five or eight to four or right. seven to six, you know, uh, but we tend to skip over like, you know, the medical professionals and the, 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 the police, police officers and the fire departments and all those people that are providing essential care to all of us. Uh, and they have kids too, right? And so mm-hmm. it's, uh, we we tend to forget about that. So uh, yep. thanks, thanks yep. for drawing that attention. And I'm, it's it's pleasing to me to hear that we have this going on. But I think what's also distressing for you and I both is that we may have a we may have thirty percent, but in many ways we still have to work at having enough and eliminating childcare deserts and making sure that the childcare is high quality. It's still very important. Still very important for all, for all children and all families. Yep. Yeah. Kim Coffrin is the Senior Director of Education at Children at Risk. Uh, thank you, Kim, for all the hard work that you and your big old team that you have going on. So thank you very much. Uh, and thanks for being on Growing Up in America. Thank you. You guys have a great afternoon. All right. Uh, coming Goodbye. up after the break, we're going to be talking with Dr. Grace Lewis. She's the Senior Health Scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund. We're going to be talking about neighborhoods and what's going on with climate and who's vulnerable to some of the climate change and everything else that's going on. We're coming right back on Growing Up in America. You're listening to Growing Up in America with Claire and Dr. Bob. Um, Our final guest today, Dr. Grace Lewis. She's the Senior Health Scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund. And we're going to be talking about climate vulnerability across the country. Grace, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? Very, Thank very you good. Thank you for having me on your show today. Absolutely. So good to talk to you again. Uh, so, Dr. Lewis, give us an idea. I know that... Last time you and, you and I talked, we talked about some of the worst cities in America for uh, the environment and climate. But talk about this specific climate vulnerability index that you guys are doing. Sure, absolutely. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. Um, I think we have created a, a new um, screening and mapping tool, environmental climate justice, um, like a robust tool um, to help us understand or make a really um, important leap forward understanding the nexus of climate, environment, um, and health, um, and really trying to make some impactful change. Um, we using a data-driven scientific approach to understand where are the most vulnerable communities across the nation um, in our region, um, and, and trying to understand what are the causes of um, those um, factors that is that um, limit its resilience and adaptability um, for climate change because we uh, we really uh, understand that um, there's a critical need to understand like why are communities uh, what are communities needing to be more resilient um, and to build targeted adaptation strategies but also to try to take advantage of the historic Justice 40 um, funds to try to reduce Mm. those environmental and climate justice and health disparities. So, Grace, what is is the city that is the most vulnerable around climate right now today in America? Well, um, I think there's uh, many cities on many different levels. Um, We certainly have a lot of them in Texas uh, in particular, Um, but... It, it, what we found in our tool that there is no state 
um, in the United States and, and the District of Columbia that is not impacted by climate change. Wow, wow. Um, and so we really, uh, but what we do see is um, with our tool that the communities have had long-standing environmental disparities, what we um, traditionally think of as environmental justice communities, yep. um, are the ones that have uh, the greatest, uh, the highest ranking um, climate vulnerability because those existing um, environmental justice um, concerns are really being amplified or magnified by uh, climate impact. So is it going to be like uh, the coast of Louisiana and then Houston and Port Arthur and Corpus? Are those still the same cities that keep coming up to the top? They are. And actually, Port Arthur, um, when we ranked over 73,000 uh, plus census tracts in the United States, and census tracts are those um, small geographic boundaries that, you know, when we um, when the U.S. census comes out that we um, we aggregate or we understand for about 4,000 people, roughly. Um, and so we looked at all those census tracts across the United States and, and um, with our tool, and we found that Port Arthur had the top three highest-ranking census tracts. But within the, um, the Houston region, like among the top 100 census tracts out of the U.S., we have four of them um, right here in Harris County. Wow. Yeah, thinking of this index tool that's coming out or just what you've seen, what are cities that are doing mm -hmm. some innovative solutions to combat climate change and what are they doing? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think there are a lot of, uh, of interesting innovative solutions um, that are being proposed. Um, I think for us, like this tool is really to try to dig into um, where we have the, that nexus of, of environment, climate, and health, and try to find out where we need to put resources um, rather than um, us focusing on, like, those adaptation strategies right now. So um, I'm, I'm sorry I can't, like, uh, answer that one uh, very well. <laughs> no, you're fine. It's interesting, too, to hear the quick need for resources just as um, and just seeing the research come out as you see the headlines again it's very dooming I don't know the official name for it but mm -hmm. um, as myself I know the clock as soon as it went up in New York I, I feel like there's a ticking time mm -hmm. bomb in the back of my mind all the time and so seeing research continue to come out and this tool I think is going to be super effective in at least identifying those needing the most help urgently yeah I, I, I'm not uh, I think there are a lot of efforts uh, underway and certainly um, I think um, you know particularly around heat and and other um, factors that um, flooding and hurricanes and other wildfires that are really pressing and and prominent in the media I think right now you know while we would love to address mitigation strategies we also have to start thinking about adaptation strategies um, and so this I think tool gives us the data because it integrates um, nearly 200 different indicators um, in a range of different um, uh, areas, uh, health, environment, social vulnerability, economics, infrastructure, to try to understand, like, what is um, at the root cause of uh, what helps a community be resilient and sustainable and adaptable, um, and where are the, and, and marrying that with a with an understanding of what are the projections of climate and how are they going to impact health, social and economic stressors. Um, you know, we've tried to use information on past uh, events like extreme weather events and the climate um, cost of climate disasters to try to pinpoint, like, where are those vulnerable areas? Where have, um, uh, I think it's an opportunity to look at where have resources already been allocated and does that align with the most vulnerable communities? Well, Grace, I want to ask you another question before we go to our final fun questions here on our segment. Uh, when you think about climate change and uh, everything that comes with that, and there are so many different things. You know, I remember watching the the Al Gore movie and um, – Mm -hmm. What was the name of that movie? I was. Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> so, but watching that movie and seeing all the things at the end, saying these are the things that you could do to sort of help with climate change. Um, mm -hmm. What What are the things that you think are sort of the most powerful? Maybe that you do, or that you have buddies that are doing, or that 
that you guys at the Environmental Defense Fund, you say these are things that we should – I mean, is it becoming a vegetarian? Is it driving an electric car? Is it trying to bike everywhere? I mean, what is the thing that, that can have a big impact if we act personally? If we act personally, I think um, – I. I think that being aware of our overall impact on the climate and understanding that um, certainly transportation and other things like how we use um, or source like electricity in terms of like fossil fuels mm-hmm. um, and their contribution to um, air pollution and the intersection of like what is um, what is contributing to uh, global warming because driving our cars um, certainly produces the air pollution that um, we know contribute to greenhouse gases and other things like that. So I think trying to be aware of the impact you're making um, and conscious about that, but also trying to, um, from my perspective, one of the most meaningful things you can do is to try to support your elected officials who have the same values. Oh, yeah. um, try to get them into positions of power because we see like the importance of having people who support legislation and, and, um, and funding to like really try to make um, action and, and hold commitments that the United States has made to try to improve climate change for everybody in the world. I don't think we can individually alone do it. Um, yeah. So we need to put people into positions of power that are going That's to, um, you know, to to take up the cause for all of us. Yeah. Um, but certainly, um, I do think it's important for us also to um, to think about our individual impacts and footprint, um, and trying to you know walk sure. more, um, trying to you know um, reduce our carbon impacts. Um, you know, where we can. All right. We have uh, 90 seconds and we always like to ask some fun questions right at the end. So what did you <laughs> want to be when you were growing up, Grace? Oh, I, I think I actually wanted to be a doctor. A doctor. Very <laughs> so, good. Like you're close. Yeah. Did you have any, or what was your, pretty close. <laughs> yeah. what was your favorite hobby growing up? My favorite hobby, um, I love to play outside, but I definitely love to read. Reading. Um, Very good. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) And what was your favorite food as a kid, Grace? Ah, popcorn. Wow. Still my favorite. I love popcorn. Next to fried chicken. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I still love popcorn. It's still one of my favorite foods. (laughs) And then final question. Oh, I have one more. What was your favorite book since you were a reader? My favorite books, uh, book that is, um, hmm. I think one of my favorite books, um, I've always cherished and still keep a hard copy of is, um, Old Past White Clouds. Oh, wow. I don't know. I have to get that one. (laughs) That's going to be on the top of our reading list. (laughs) I know we need to have a growing up in America. That's the name of that book. It's, um, it's about Buddhism. (laughs) Oh, wow. Dr. Grace Lewis is a senior health scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund. Grace, thank you so much. Grace, I want to have you back because I feel like we don't talk about the environment enough. It's impact on children and families. So uh, thank you very much for your work and thank you for being on Growing Up in America. Thank you, Dr. Bob. I appreciate it. All right. Talk to you soon. Uh, that's it for today for Growing Up in America. Next week, we have another scintillating show coming up right after Border Radio. We love, board, we love, I love Border, Border Radio. Radio. Yeah, I know. We are so right after Border Radio on Wednesdays. And um, so we do this each and every week for children. for children. See you next time on Growing Up in America. Meet in the middle, dance all night. Take it all off, or just a little, if you like. It's pure. It should cost a billion to look this good. Oh, yeah. But she make it look easy, cause she got it. Check my technique. You can find the one when the tempo good. Wanna touch my technique. Four, three, two, pretty girls. That's my technique. Uh, that's my, that's my, that's my technique. Uh, this is Dave Alvin, and right this second, you're listening to KPFT, Houston, Texas. Hey, wouldn't it be great if life came with a remote control? You know, you could hit pause when you needed to, or hit rewind. Like that time you knocked down that wasp's nest. Uh-oh. Or that time you forgot to roll up your windows in the car wash. Fantastic. Yeah, a remote control would have come in handy then. 
Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. With early diagnosis and a few healthy changes like managing your weight, getting active, stopping smoking, and eating healthier, you can stop pre-diabetes before it leads to type 2 diabetes. It's easy to learn your risk. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Life doesn't come with a remote control. So you're on your own with the wasps. You have the power to take control of pre-diabetes. Visit doihaveprediabetes.org today. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. You know, I grew up hearing that women are bad with money. But like many of you, I spent years paying bills, managing checking accounts, and taking care of my family. So turns out women are pretty good with money after all. And now I'm taking control of my financial future by saving for retirement. It's never too late to start, and there's a great website to help you. 